ages 30 to 65, PAP only every three years, or PAP plus high-risk HPV every five years, or high-risk HPV alone, which is called primary HPV testing, every five years. So ladies, you can stop worrying about the shave and a haircut and your Sunday best panties every time you go in for your annual physical. And frankly, that annual exam itself, just going to a doctor once a year, there's question about whether even that's entirely necessary. But we definitely know that most of you can keep your britches on when you go to the doctor's office, except for that every three to five years when you have this testing done. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about everything you need to know about the pap test, HPV, and pelvic exams. As if hopping onto an exam table butt naked wasn't stressful enough, knowing what to do about PAPs and HPV and whether you need pelvic exams can be super confusing. I'm going to break it all down so you know what to say yes to, when and why, and when to say thank you but no ma'am. So let's start with the pelvic exam, which we can actually say bye-bye to. The pelvic exam is that part of your gynecology appointment where your doctor, your family doctor, your internist or gynecologist, or your nurse practitioner or your midwife looks at and feels around in your cooch with a couple of gloved and lubed fingers to make sure everything is just as it should be. Sometimes a speculum, that plastic or metal duck-billed looking thing, is used to facilitate the looking part and also gathering samples of fluids from your cervix and vaginal fluids in case you're having testing done. Most of us gals put going to the doctor for an annual pelvic exam up there with going to the dentist for a root canal. Well, guess what? Here's the good news. According to the American College of Physicians, in a July 1st, 2014 report, that annual pelvic exam can go the way of the dinosaur. The ACP data on the usefulness, risks and benefits of the annual pelvic exam demonstrates that it should be abandoned. According to the ACP recommendations, in women who are otherwise healthy and have no pelvic symptoms, routine annual pelvic exams and routine pelvic exams in general are not only unnecessary and uncomfortable, they do more harm than good, leading to false positive findings, anxiety, and unnecessary subsequent testing. Now, not everybody has agreed with this. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, has expressed their concern about these guidelines and has until recently stood by its current recommendations that pelvic exams should be done routinely at annual visits. They do state, however, 
that the choice to perform pelvic exams is one that should be made on the basis of a woman's individual needs, requests, and preferences. Now, if you can pick and choose whether you want to do something based on personal preference, that doesn't sound like a medical necessity to me. ACOG also states that the primary reason for doing exams is to be able to diagnose urinary incontinence and sexual dysfunction. Now, these have absolutely nothing to do with cervical cancer. Both urinary incontinence and sexual dysfunction can be diagnosed quite adequately on the basis of a good health history with a woman still fully clothed. A woman can tell her doctor if she's leaking urine when she sneezes, jumps, coughs, or otherwise, and if asked, which in fact, statistically, most doctors don't, she can also tell her doctor or other practitioner how things are going in her sex life. A pelvic exam isn't going to help her doctor diagnose sexual dysfunction, most of which actually has nothing to do with physical problems. What about needing to have a pelvic exam to get tested for sexually transmitted infections? It's true, usually a fluid sample is collected from the cervix during the pelvic exam to check for gonorrhea and chlamydia, though the data is clear that these can be tested just as well via a urine sample and that low-risk women don't need this testing anyway. So, hmm, let me ask you, pee in a cup in the privacy of the bathroom if you're at risk for sexually transmitted infections or drop your drawers, lie down on your back, and pop your legs into stirrups for an exam. They should only be done when medically indicated, meaning you have pelvic symptoms or pelvic health concerns. But listen on, because we still need the pap test. And there have been some big changes in that, how often to get it, which testing to get, and so forth, that I really want you to know about. While in general, the risk of cancer is very low for women in the United States, representing only 1.5% of all deaths related to cancer in women, it's not zero. In the United States in 2014, for example, there were an estimated 12,360 new cases of cervical cancer and 4,020 cervical cancer-related deaths related to invasive cervical cancer. Pap smears, also called pap tests or cervical cytology, are done to check for early changes in your cervix that could indicate a risk for or the presence of cervical cancer. Pap smears are done to check for changes in your cervix that could indicate a risk for cervical cancer. HPV testing for the specific strains that are associated with increased cancer risk, which is about nine strains, is done at the same time in women over 30 or as further testing in women aged 21 to 30 with abnormal results on recent pap testing. I'm going to break that down for you even more in just a minute. Since the 1950s in the United States, when we adopted the pap test for cervical screening, it was developed in 1941, the number of new cervical cancer cases decreased by 70% in just the first three decades of use. This was because the test allowed early detection of precancerous cervical changes that could then be treated before they became cervical cancer. Countries with higher rates of cervical cancer screening have dramatically lower rates of cervical cancer deaths. The great majority of cervical cancer cases occur in resource-poor countries where there is almost a complete absence of cervical cancer screening. How much does the test have to do with this? Put it this way, as many as 65% of all women who do develop cervical cancer have never been tested or have not been tested appropriately. About half of the cervical cancer that's found in the late stage, 
is usually in older women who have not been getting any screening. And it's much more prevalent, as I mentioned, in developing countries. Because the human papilloma virus, which I'm going to just call HPV for the rest of our time together today, is now thought to be the main protagonist in at least 93% of cervical cancer cases, HPV testing has been added to the repertoire of cervical cancer screening options. However, because cervical cancer progresses very slowly and requires the presence of one of the cancer-promoting or high-risk HPV strains, also called HRHPV, to be active continuously for years, frequent testing is no longer considered necessary, and periodic testing with a PAP and high-risk HPV screening only if there are abnormal results or in women over 30 who choose co-testing with PAP plus HRHPV, which can catch cancerous cells and the presence of high-risk HPV early. Further studies have shown that routinely screening for HPV in women under 30 results in a lot of unnecessary colposcopies which is a pelvic exam that's done using a very specific kind of microscope that allows your doctor or practitioner to look closely at the cervix and at that time do some testing on the cervix, applying things like iodine or acetic acid, which show up different changes on the cervix. And also if needed, because some changes are seen that are concerning, to get a biopsy at that time. So what happens is when women under 30 get HPV testing, if it's positive, that sends up a flag that you should actually get a colposcopy. The thing is, in women under 30, most often the HPV that's detected is completely transient and would totally clear on its own without any further testing. So that's why it's not recommended at all for women under 30 unless the pap is positive for cervical cellular changes. Now, most of us wouldn't mind getting a pap every three to five years, right? That's tolerable, especially if the exam is done gently and respectfully as it should be by a woman provider, if that's more comfortable for you, and even with your own participation, if you'd like, by optimally inserting your own speculum, for example. Now, the pap smear is a test that I absolutely strongly urge women to get according to the guidelines, which I'm going to deep dive with you very shortly. I keep up with my own paps. I encourage my daughters to get them and my patients and best friends and so forth as well. And I encourage you to do it as well, because hands down, the data really does show this dramatic, significant reduction in cervical cancer rates because of catching cellular changes early. But I want to be clear, the pap is not without some controversy, and has not had a history without some harm. In fact, it's more controversial than a lot of people, even doctors who do the test, realize. Its effectiveness in screening for cervical cancer has never been demonstrated in randomized trials, and there remains uncertainty about the most effective methods for collecting and analyzing the cells. Currently, we use a test called the thin prep, and that so far has seemed to be the most effective in screening with the least false positives. That said, we do know that rates of advanced cervical cancer, again, are much higher in countries where we don't have this test 
So the benefits of finding out the information early are hands down considered to outweigh any risk of getting a false positive testing. But one of the problems with PAPS is that abnormal test results are quite common, even when there are no medical problems present. Tests can be misinterpreted or misclassified. And even when there are some actual abnormal cells present, those usually resolve on their own, even when, especially if changes are very mild and there's no HPV present. Between 50 and 60 million pap tests are done annually in the United States alone. About 3.5 million of these are read as abnormal, and an estimated 2.5 million women undergo further diagnostic testing as a result. This is time-consuming and positive results that often end up being false positives can cause a great deal of anxiety while you're waiting and getting follow-up testing. Further, until recently, we were told that we needed a pap smear annually. From the time we first opened our legs for a gyne appointment in our teens or early 20s until in our 60s. The awkward annual ritual of feet in stirrups, followed by cervical scraping and probing with fingers, was believed to be a critical, life-saving part of an all-important annual gyne exam. In reality, for most of us, it wasn't. And for many women, much more harm was done than good. In fact, the pap smear has a little bit of a scarred history. It's not all roses and sunshine. For decades, those of us challenging the OB status quo, particularly midwives like me, observed an alarming phenomenon. Many women who'd previously been subjected to leap procedures and cone biopsies done to burn, freeze, or cut out potentially precancerous cells after a quote-unquote bad pap, and I want to just emphasize false positives were notoriously higher with the older version of the pap smear, these women went on to later have difficulty with cervical dilatation during labor when they had babies. This was due to cervical scarring and stenosis as a result of these procedures. Many of these women ended up with cesareans because of quote-unquote failure to progress as a result. But the failure was not in the women at all, but in an imperfect and often overzealous gynecology system that tended to slash and burn, and when it came to leap procedures, literally burn first and ask questions later. I'd like to think the intentions were good, and of course, in the hands of doctors, most were. But big money has been made in the name of cancer prevention and cervical screening. So ladies, it seems that in the past few years, someone's been asking better questions and the lowdown on PAPs and pelvics has been changing, practically in front of my very eyes, and it couldn't have come too soon. First, about 10 years ago, the relationship between cervical procedures and later problems with childbirth was formally recognized by the obstetrics and gynecology community and acknowledged. And what they discovered was exactly what us midwives were seeing. They found that these procedures were associated with an increased risk of second trimester pregnancy loss because the cervix was unable to stay closed because it had been weakened by a procedure, preterm rupture of membranes, preterm delivery, all for the same reasons, or conversely, if a woman made it to term, difficulty dilating in labor due to a problem called cervical stenosis, where the cervix got rigid and unable to dilate because of scarring from these procedures. And this led to so many women having cesarean sections that wouldn't have otherwise been required. 
along with the fact that most women under the age of 21 and many women at that age were testing positive for HPV and getting these procedures, we now know that these women will almost universally spontaneously revert to a normal pap and will naturally clear the HPV virus without any treatment at all. So the risk of the pap in women under 30 leading to an invasive procedure and later childbirth problems, and particularly in women under age 21, really had to be considered. And this was being done year after year after year on women under 30, and all women for that matter, and unnecessarily and erroneously in women under 21. Unfortunately, this new information came too late for the literally hundreds of thousands of young women who were subjected to potentially damaging cervical procedures based on the results of tests that should never have been done. And it may be that you're listening right now and thinking, oh my goodness, I had one of those procedures and I had one of those problems. I had trouble getting pregnant or I had trouble maintaining my pregnancy. I miscarried. I had preterm birth or I had a C-section because my cervix wouldn't dilate. And all this time you were thinking that you were doing something wrong or there was something wrong with you and nobody ever told you that one, no matter what, none of that is your fault, even if you never had a cervical procedure. But two, if you had a cervical procedure, that could be exactly why. Now, cervical procedures still pose all these same risks. It's been also discovered that the emotional and physical risks of finding false positives outweighed the risks of annual screening. Therefore, and especially for women in your childbearing years, if you're listening, it's critical to find the sweet spot between enough screening to catch early cervical changes and high-risk HPV and not over-testing and treating. So how often should PAP and HPV screening be done? The guidelines for PAPs and HPV testing have been in flux over the past eight years as various professional groups have been sorting out that best-use sweet spot from over-testing and putting women at risk of harm from unnecessary procedures. In 2018, a group called the United States Preventative Services Task Force, an independent organization that evaluates the guidelines and recommendations put out by professional groups, issued the latest set of cervical cancer screening guidelines. And that's what I'm about to go over with you. This is the best way to avoid over-testing and over-treatment that we know at this time. It would be ideal if your care provider was up to date on these. But here's the thing. The guidelines have been changing every few years for the past eight or 10 years. And as more information evolves about testing, the tests get revised. And not all practitioners are keeping up with the changes fast enough. This is another problem. Studies show that it can take up to 17 years in medicine for the latest research to trickle into most clinical practices. And by then, with what we're seeing with pap smears, it may have changed again. From what I'm seeing, this lack of information on the part of practitioners about what the most current recommendations are for when to do paps and what follow-up testing to do if the pap is negative and how often to do them is not hitting the mark. I can't even tell you the number of women who have shared stories of being erroneously told that they needed a colposcopy or a biopsy, for example, which weren't consistent with the recommendations of the guidelines. So cervical cancer screening or testing should begin at age 21 and not before. I'm going to repeat that. Women under age 21 should not be screened. No how, 
no way, not happening. The only time you would ever even consider some form of cervical screening in a woman who was under 21 is if she were having some very concerning symptoms, if she were having cervical bleeding and you needed to have a visualization and there showed some problem, and then you would do the test. But the chance of cervical cancer in that age group is so negligible that the test is really not warranted. And so if you are under 21 and you're listening, or if you're a mom or a healthcare provider and you've got daughters under 21 or patients under 21, know that nobody should be offering them routine pap smears or HPV testing at that age. If somebody does that, they're not practicing up-to-date medicine. Between ages 21, so when you turn 21, and through to the end of your 29th year, so ages 21 to 29, it's recommended that you have a pap test only every three years. HPV testing should not be used in women 21 to 29 unless it's needed to do next level testing if you've had an abnormal pap. Now, if you get an abnormal pap, then your follow-up testing is different. It's not just every three years. But if you're just getting routine screening, it's every three years as long as everything is normal. No HPV testing unless the pap comes back abnormal. Once you turn 30 and through age 65, so from 30 years old to 65 years old, you have three options. You can have a pap test only every three years, or instead, every five years, you can choose either a pap plus high-risk HPV testing. And the HPV testing is done at the same time as the pap. It's just another swab that's done um, of your cervical vaginal fluid. Or there's a new option, which is now approved, which is high-risk HPV testing alone every five years. It's your choice which one to do. Every three years, PAP only. It means going in a little bit more often, but hey, every three years isn't that frequent. Or every five years, high-risk HPV plus a PAP, or every five years, high-risk HPV alone. Now, you're thinking, well, I don't know which one to choose. Between the three years and the five years, that's really a matter of personal choice for your own convenience. Keep in mind that HPV testing, when you add that into the mix, does add in a little bit of an element of a higher risk of getting false positives. That said, your chance of developing cervical cancer when you don't have HPV present, one of the high-risk forms, is, is really negligible. Studies show that it's at least 93% of cervical cancers are associated with high-risk HPV. So maybe even as much as 97%, you really have to have that present for cervical cancer to get activated. Now, not everyone with high-risk HPV is going to develop cervical cancer. Uh, that really starts to depend on what are called host factors. So my personal choice for myself and also for my patients in the 30 to 65 age range is to choose between the three-year PAP or the five-year PAP plus high-risk HPV. Personally, I don't love having to remember to go every three years. Every five years is great for me. I personally have a low risk for cervical cancer, and I've never had a positive PAP. So five years is perfect for me. I can remember every five years. Oh, it's about that. It's been about five years since I you know, had that test, and then go ahead and get it. And I don't mind having the HPV run at that time. I'm not as confident in the high-risk HPV only. 
And it has been approved by the United States Preventative Services Task Force, that independent organization I made, as a reasonable test with very low risk of uh, it leading to unnecessary procedures. So it still requires you to get the pelvic exam to get this uh, sample, but I'm still in favor of the PAP and the HPV screening at that time. I think we have more information about it. I think we reduce the likelihood of false positives when you have both tests. But again, totally your choice and whatever really is comfortable for you. So just chat with your primary care provider, again, which can be a doctor, nurse midwife, nurse practitioner, some naturopaths in states where naturopaths are licensed can also offer this testing. So what about women over 65? Here's the the down low. Women over 65 who have had regular cervical cancer screening throughout their lives with normal results and no personal high risk for cervical cancer should not be tested for cervical cancer as long as she's had either three normal PAPs or two normal high-risk HPV tests in the past 10 years with the most recent testing within the last five years. Once testing is stopped, it should not be started again. Now, women with a history of a serious cervical pre-cancer PAP should continue to be tested for at least 20 years after that diagnosis, even if testing continues past age 65. What if you've had a hysterectomy? A woman who's had her uterus plus her cervix removed for reasons not related to cervical cancer and who has no history of cervical cancer or serious pre-cancer changes seen on a pap no longer needs a pap. What if you've been vaccinated against HPV? You should still follow these recommendations, and I'll explain why when I get to the end of our podcast where I'm going to give you a special Q&A of questions from women who posted on my Facebook page and in a previous blog comments so that I can kind of run through what your questions might be also. Now, all of the guidelines that I've just shared with you are for women with normally functioning immune systems. It means that you're not immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. If you're immunosuppressed, for example, you have HIV, you're on immunosuppressive medications or corticosteroids, or if you have other risk factors like your mom used DES when she was pregnant with you, that's diethylstilbestrol, or if you have a history of high-grade Precancerous cervical lesions, what's called HSIL or cervical cancer, then your guidelines are slightly different. So you need to discuss your specific situation with your care provider. The guidelines I shared with you apply to most women, but not women who are immunocompromised or have the other risk factors I mentioned. And of course, if you have any symptoms that are suspicious for cervical cancer, then you want to get screening that's appropriate right away. So to summarize briefly, any woman under age 21, no PAP, no HPV, even if you're sexually active. Women aged 21 to 29, a PAP every three years with high-risk HPV testing only if PAP results come back not normal. Ages 30 to 65, PAP only every three years or PAP plus high-risk HPV every five years or high-risk HPV alone, which is called primary HPV testing, every five years. 
So, ladies, you can stop worrying about the shave and a haircut and your Sunday best panties every time you go in for your annual physical. And frankly, that annual exam itself, just going to a doctor once a year, there's question about whether even that's entirely necessary. But we definitely know that most of you can keep your britches on when you go to the doctor's office, except for that every three to five years when you have this testing done. Of course, Concerning symptoms such as abnormal vaginal bleeding, signs of infection, a history of suspicious cells on your pap, what's called persistent HPV, then a screening exam, including a pelvic exam, is necessary. What we're talking about is just inappropriate use of routine exams or too frequent exams, in which case, when overused, the harms are now clearly proven to outweigh the benefits. So I said I'd share some thoughts on how to reduce your risk of cervical cancer. Now, keep in mind, pap smears don't prevent cervical cancer. They just detect early cellular changes or advanced cellular changes. When abnormal cells are caught early, proper treatment can prevent them from turning into cancer. But we can also take steps to keep our cells maximally healthy and prevent cervical cancer. These are the steps that I'm going to share with you today that all of us can do to prevent cervical cancer, and especially important if you have higher risks. So the first thing is to prevent HPV infection. Well, as many as 4 to 20% of women with HPV have only one sexual partner, your risk of getting HPV goes up with the number of sexual partners that you have over your lifetime. And here's the thing. Condoms prevent a lot of sexually transmitted infections but they don't always prevent HPV transmission. So I get it that you might have a number of friends with benefits. And I am so not judgy and think that it's so important for us to experience pleasure and have the relationships that are meaningful and satisfy us. But do keep in mind, as I said, more sexual partners, more risk of HPV. Studies have shown that eating a diet high in fruits and vegetables and also fish, kind of a Mediterranean-style diet, has been found to reduce a woman's cervical cancer risk, while studies have also found that women low in a number of vitamins and minerals may be more at risk of developing cervical cancer. Fruits and vegetables contain powerful cell-protective phytochemicals called polyphenols and other plant-based nutrients, and specific chemicals that support our immune system, and also specific nutrients like vitamins A, C, E, selenium, and others that have been found to help prevent not only cervical cancer, but other forms of cancer. Folate deficiency is thought to increase the risk of cervical cancer based on a number of studies, and folate is found abundantly in leafy green vegetables. It's a natural ingredient found in broccoli family vegetables like broccoli itself, kale, collard greens, and Brussels sprouts. Those specifically contain something called indole-3-carbonyl that your body produces from constituents in these green vegetables that may even help to reverse cervical dysplasia, changes in your cervical cells. Smokers are at a very high risk, much higher than non-smokers of developing cervical cancer. In fact, smokers are two to four times more likely to develop cervical cancer. It's been found that 
constituents in the cigarettes themselves actually accumulate in the cervix and increase what's called oxidative damage. They increase local damage that allows those HPV cells to get activated and cause even more damage to the cervix. So I get it that quitting smoking can be really challenging, but if you are a smoker, I do urge you to find someone that you can work with, whether that be a primary care provider, uh, a therapist, even doing hypnosis to help yourself try to protect yourself better by not smoking. And then finally, consider alternatives to birth control pills. There is a very small increase in cervical cancer in long-term oral contraceptive users. So considering natural family planning, an IUD without hormones, or speak with your primary provider about other forms of birth control if you want to take that step, which there are many, many reasons to consider and that I talk about in my podcast and blog on risks of the birth control pill. Let's do a Q&A. And thank you to all of you who have posted questions on my Facebook page in the past. Let's get started. One question is, is it okay to never get a pap smear? Look, not getting a pap smear is an option as a personal choice. However, having seen and treated women in the hospital when I was working in conventional medical settings with advanced cervical cancer, it's not an option that I would personally choose or recommend for anyone. And even with the stress of false positives, the new recommendations aren't too demanding. They've reduced the false positive rates that we at least saw in the past. Knowing early is better than not knowing late when it comes to cervical cancer. Cervical cancer doesn't usually cause any symptoms until it's very advanced. So screening is really important. So I, I mentioned earlier that I was going to talk more about if you've had the HPV vaccine, do you still need the testing? So the answer is yes, as I said, and the reason is twofold. One, HPV vaccines are not 100% effective at preventing cervical cancer, and it doesn't prevent against all the strains of high-risk HPV. Further, HPV vaccine only protects you against strains that you've never previously been exposed to. So let's say you get vaccinated when you're 25 and you've been sexually active since you were 17, there's a very good chance that you've been exposed to HPV, including some of those high-risk strains at some point. So you can't use HPV vaccine as a 100% guarantee that you won't develop cervical changes. That's why the routine screening is still really important. As I mentioned, uh, one of the questions is, can't you tell if you have HPV without getting tested? Again, unfortunately, no. Most high-risk type HPV infections don't cause symptoms. Some people will say, oh, well, if you have genital warts, you have HPV. And so if you don't have genital warts, it's not a problem. It is true that genital warts are caused by HPV, but they're caused mostly by types 6 and 11, which are considered low risk because they have not been linked to cervical cancer. The strains that cause cervical cancer, again, are typically asymptomatic. Another question is, cervical cancers in younger women can sometimes be more aggressive. Will we find later on when history repeats itself around changes in the pap smear screening, that waiting three to five years between paps is too long. Women of all ages are at risk of cervical cancer, but it actually occurs most often in women over 30 because that group is less likely to just spontaneously clear the HPV infection, and that age group is more likely to have what are called persistent HPV infections, which I'm going to talk about in my episode on what to do if you have a positive pap or positive HPV. 
All of the studies looking at cancer prevention and detection show that there is virtually no change in outcomes or in the rates of missed cervical cancer with the new screening guidelines, and that women were much less likely to be subjected to unnecessary additional testing under the new model. So it's a win-win, and I don't think in a number of years that we're going to regret having gone to the three- to five-year testing protocol. Another question is, Dr. Ram, do you need a PAP just to get a birth control prescription? And how about if you are trying to conceive, should you get a PAP then? You do not need a PAP to get a prescription for birth control for an IUD to be placed or if you're trying to conceive unless you're due for one. Another question is, if there is no history of cervical or ovarian cancer in your family, should you continue to get them yearly? First of all, family history does not necessarily change the recommended PAP schedule. However, it would be important for you to follow diligently the recommended schedule that does not encourage you to get them yearly just because if there's a family history. But if you do have a family history of any kind of cancer, make sure that your diet is rich in fruits and vegetables, that you avoid smoking, that you take really good care of yourself, that you're addressing all the possible risk factors that we know can lead to cancer because in 80% of cases, we know that cancer is actually, it's the intersection of not just having the genes, but genes and environmental factors, some of which, of course, are beyond our control, but some of which we can do our best to get on top of, and especially as young as you can. For women who have been violated, what is a good way to get over the anxiety, aversion, and fear about PAPS? How can we feel empowered for a very vulnerable situation? This is a really tough situation, and thank you for this question, and sadly, it's not uncommon. I personally recommend finding a woman practitioner, maybe not even a gynecologist, but rather a nurse midwife or a nurse practitioner who may be better skilled in providing a considerate and gentle exam. I recommend also letting your care provider know that sexual abuse is part of your history so she can be more sensitive. And being involved in the process of your exam for example, asking your care provider to teach you how to insert the speculum, which you can ask to have made warm before it's inserted so it's less startling. You can have a sheet thrown over you, over the bottom half of you, uh, or up to your chest while you insert it so that's less awkward too, that you're not inserting it in front of somebody. And that can really make a difference. It's a really important way for all of us to take the power back into our hands but especially if you've had any trauma, because the position of being on your back with your legs in stirrups is already one that makes most women feel vulnerable. And if you've experienced assault or trauma, that's only all the more so. And I really hope this helps answer that question for you. So many women who have had sexual trauma avoid getting PAPs. And I've worked with a number of women when I worked in the hospital um, doing inpatient gynecology work who had severe trauma in their lives and now were in their 60s who had advanced cervical cancer because they were just always so traumatized even at the idea of going to get a pelvic exam. Another question is, does having given birth affect the schedule? A pap smear is generally recommended as part of the six-week postpartum exam, but there seems to be less value in a pap smear earlier in pregnancy if you've been following the recommended pap schedule and you've always had normal PAPs in the past. Keep in mind, though, that abnormal PAPs are more common at the six-week postpartum visit, and that can dramatically add anxiety to an often already overwhelming new mom experience. So 
And my recommendation, if you've had a medical problem and it's time for you to have a pap, it's important to get one. But just be thoughtful that it could be a false positive or mild cervical changes just due to having given birth in the past six weeks uh, or even longer that will clear spontaneously. So in my medical practice, if a woman doesn't have any history of cervical cancer or high-risk changes, and she's been up to date on her PAPs and her PAPs have been normal, then I don't do testing in that first six months after birth personally in my practice. Another question is, does the HPV vaccine help if you have early cancer detected in a PAP? And will the vaccine make a PAP positive result? Getting the HPV vaccine doesn't help you prevent having HPV or cervical cancer from strains that you may have already picked up before you got the vaccine, and it won't reverse any changes seen on your pap. It protects against only some of the strains that can lead to cervical cancer, but doesn't provide immunity against all HPV types, including those responsible for about 30% of cervical cancers. Do I believe the recent FDA approval of HPV testing only replacing the PAP as a primary screening. That's the one I mentioned that was the alternative for women 30 to 65. So in 2014, the FDA approved the HPV test by Roche, the company, for primary cervical cancer screening in women aged 25 and over. And the Society for Gynecologic Oncology said they thought that it was reasonable to do primary HPV screening. And then if that's normal, do just the high-risk HPV screening every three years after that initial negative test. Initially, that independent group, the United States Services Preventative Task Force, hadn't approved that. But in 2018, they did conclude, quote-unquote, with certainty that the benefits of screening every five years with PAP alone, every five years with high-risk HPV testing alone, or every five years with co-testing, so again, the PAP plus the high-risk HPV, in women 30 to 65 outweigh the harms. So they consider it an option. As I mentioned earlier, in my practice, I still currently recommend the PAP every three years or PAP plus HR HPV every five years instead of just going to the HR HPV. When I was in my medical training, I had a dean named Herbert Chase, and he had the Chase rule of three which is wait a few years until something's being done and see how it pans out in what's called post-surveillance testing to make sure that it holds water. And while this has been thoroughly vetted and thoroughly tested, I just haven't personally, maybe I'm in that 17-year in that window where it takes evidence to trickle down, but I got comfortable with the three-year, five-year, either PAP only or co-testing. So I haven't introduced that recommendation yet. But again, it's a completely approved and legitimate recommendation. Another question is, how often do you need a PAP if you have an ovarian cyst or does it make a difference? The presence of an ovarian cyst doesn't change the PAP schedule at all. The next to last question is, how much is the reduction in annual PAP smears because of the push for the Gardasil vaccine? It's really unrelated. So the Gardasil vaccine or the HPV vaccine, as I mentioned, doesn't supplant the need for the recommended guidelines to be followed for screening for cervical cancer. So the presence of the Gardasil, it doesn't change the screening recommendations at all. And the two have not really been related. It hasn't been that the presence of the Gardasil has sort of said, okay, now that we have this, we can stretch out how often we do this testing. The changes in testing recommendations have really truly been about 
reducing the overuse of testing so that we're reducing the risks to women of these false positives, the anxiety of getting testing every year, the anxiety of false positives, and then the risks that happen when you get those false positives that send you on to further testing that can create all those risks of cervical damage and cervical changes. So totally, totally unrelated. Last question is, Dr. Aviva, my test results came back positive for HPV or cervical changes. What do I do now and how worried should I be? Getting positive results on any test can be super scary. The good news is that invasive cervical cancer is incredibly rare and most cervical changes and HPV positive results resolve spontaneously on their own without any treatment. And if you're having cervical screening, chances are it's caught any changes that might be present really early. Again, remember, HPV has to be present for years to do damage to the cervix enough to cause cervical cancer. And usually that is in the setting of other factors like nutritional deficiencies and other things that we can do to help prevent that from happening. But I want you to have the information that you need so that you can really take your health back and know what to do if you do get an HPV positive or pap smear that comes back with positive results. Knowledge is power. Thank you so much for joining me today. And in order to share this knowledge and power with other women, I rely on you to spread the word so that more women, maybe even millions of women, can get this information and take back their health. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.